Life in the Colonies in 1750. This is one of the more fun sections, okay? So same purpose as before, provide background on the influence of Christianity on the formation of America. So this is the third of nine. So somehow we gotta get all the rest of these plugged in before the end of, before Christmas comes, right? So here are our objectives. The unique cultural attributes of the British American colonies, in other words, entertainment, safety, home life. What was that like? The geography and climate that influenced, that influenced and that contributed to the regional occupations. In other words, there are different kinds of occupation, north, middle, and south. What, what contributed to that? The role the church played in everyday life. How gender and social economic status influence economic, political, social, and religious roles of these colonists that were living there in 1750. Because my, my personal piece about this is I wondered what was life like that they would decide to rebel against the most powerful army in the world. So here's some, some cultural considerations. This is a fast-growing population. The, the total population estimate in 1776 was about 2.5 million. Now, there's, there's no census until 1790. So this is just estimates. It is also believed that New England in the 50 years from 1700 to 1750 came up, the population quadrupled from 100,000 to 400,000. Now that's, that's fast growing. Half the population was under the age of 16, right? They were highly productive. Standard of living here was better than any place in England and in most of Europe. The, these people who came here from all over Europe had a tendency naturally to group up with people who have a similar language and a similar culture. So the, the vast majority of people came directly from, from England. But the, the, the Irish were in Maryland, Pennsylvania, New York, and Virginia. The Scottish were also scattered. The Pennsylvania Dutch, the Germans, had a tendency to stay in New York and Pennsylvania. Okay? The French, there weren't very many of them, but they, they hung out in New York, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and South Carolina. So they had a tendency to move further south. They felt a little more comfortable there. And the folks from the Netherlands, the, the Dutch, they seemed to kind of be fairly small numbers, but scattered around. Okay. Cultural division by financial status. These are interesting titles. You have the great and rich, then you have the middling, which is tradesmen, handicraft workers, freehold landowners. In other words, they own their, own their land, okay? Then the laboring poor, those are unskilled laborers, and then the miserable poor, okay? Now, th those are essentially the same groupings we've got today. We don't, we don't use those titles, but we have those same groupings, okay? The culture varied by area, by religious influence, and by whether it was urban or, or rural. In New England, it was primarily influenced by the Puritans. Farms tended to be well-maintained. Remind me of the, of the Mennonites in our area. Okay? There were essentially small farms, though. But timber, fishing, ship stores were the key industries, primarily in the north. Okay? In the central area, it was influenced by the Quakers. Although the Quakers were in Pennsylvania, they had, seemed to have more significant influence in the central area, primarily out in the Ohio Valley. So they were often involved in fur trade, farming, and manufacturing in some very key industries that we'll look at here in a little bit. In the south, influenced by the Anglican Church. Okay? Tend to be large plantations. Tobacco was the key financial input because it was the thing that they, they were able to, to harvest and sell overseas. Culture had a tendency to be centered around the home, okay? And home and, as we'll see later, church. So 
the, the culture was very family focused. Home life, father was the head of the family. In this period of time, they got their authority from four sources, from scripture, lead the, supposed to lead the family in daily prayer, responsible for teaching children the tenets of the doctrines of the faith. Also from church order, where there was structure and depends on the structure by what denomination you're in, and from employment, which required order, and the custom of the day. So you've got these four areas that put the male at the head of everything. Large families, 10 to 14 children on average. Okay? One about every two years, 70 to 80% of them survive to adulthood. Now, now that's, a, that's a high survival rate compared to anywhere else in the world. By 1750, as I said earlier, half the population was under the age of 16. But here's the one that got me. Only 2% of the population were over 65. So uh, I, if I was there, I would be in the absolute minority. Housing. Most of it wood and some brick. All, all of them cold, drafty, and smoky. Why do you suppose they were smoky? Yeah, I mean, the only heater was, it was typically a fireplace, okay? Salt box design was common, and, and this took me a long time to figure out why it was such a common design. It's because it was designed to be expanded, okay? I finally found some drawings of blueprints for the floor plan, and you could see the, the plan in the, in the blueprint for expansion, okay? Uh, Georgian houses, they're primarily brick, and of course then there are log cabins, okay? <coughs> Excuse me. So th this is one of the blueprints that I looked at for, for a salt box house. This was from 1720. And some things to note, here's the original kitchen, here is another kitchen, and here is another kitchen. <clears throat> so, so the kitchen was moved as the house was expanded. The fireplace remained in each, each case, but then they would move the actual location of the kitchen. So some of these salt block houses uh, continue to today. This is one, this is a very recent photograph, and this is one that's been refurbished as, as part of a museum. Okay? This was a photo of one that no longer exists, and this is, of course, somebody's drawing of what life might have looked like. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it would not be unusual for, the, for that wall, for part of it to go away, as they expanded the house, but the fireplace to remain there. Heating primarily wood. Flint and steel is the way you got the fire started, and so if you got a fire going, you didn't want it to go out because it's not all that easy to get one started, okay? The Franklin stove that we see uh, talked about in, in some literature came about in 1714, really not very efficient. The, the, the value of it, they didn't have to build a brick to, to contain the fire. They did it in this piece of steel. Uh, stuff I've read indicates that about the best you could hope for to get the, the room temperature up was somewhere in the middle 50s, okay? And I suspect that depended upon how cold it was outside. Lighting, candles, and whale oil lamps. So you got wood fire, candles, and whale oil lamps. So everything in there is going to be smoky. Okay. No indoor plumbing, of course. So we've got, got the pots, and then we've got the outdoor toilet. Water, uh, primarily from rain barrels, springs, hand-dug wells. Okay. Didn't have any well drillers. So, it, so we're talking about wells 
typically it wouldn't be more than about 60 to 80 feet deep, a lot of, lot of shallow wells. And you get a shallow well next to an outhouse, okay, and now you've got problems with disease. Food was very plentiful, lots of game, turkeys, ducks, deer, geese, all, all that stuff is around. A lot of domestic animals, cattle, pigs, sheep, fish, shellfish, fairly easy to come by. Uh, they grew all kinds of stuff, corn, pumpkin, squash, turnips, carrots, beans. So by 1750, food was not in short supply, okay, for, for most people. I mean, there's all... There's always situations, but for the most part, very easy, okay? What did they drink? Well, the big issue was the water was not safe to drink, okay? Um, although they didn't have names for it, because we, you know, we, we didn't have microbiology at, at this point in time, or we did, but we didn't know about these little critters. But the, the data that's around indicates that, that lots of people passed because of typhoid, cholera, and dysentery, okay? These are waterborne diseases. They're still prevalent throughout the world today. Uh, dysentery uh, probably kills more people on a daily basis around the world than anything else. Uh, 20 years ago, we were, we, there was lots of calculation that we were losing at least four people per day in any given large geographical area from dysentery. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's real common, okay? First public well was in New York in 1677. It was not chlorinated because we didn't know about chlorine, okay? The disinfection wasn't understood. It was a public water system put in, in, in Boston in 1795. Uh, no chlorine until the early 1900s and the medical profession was opposed to putting chlorine in the water. Now, these were the same doctors who didn't want to wash their hands between working on patients, okay? So what did they drink? Beer, ale, wine, brandy, cider, and whiskey, okay? It was common to have those kinds of drinks on the kitchen table, morning, lunch, and supper. Now, stuff that I've read indicates that the the alcohol content in the beer was relatively low. They were look, using natural fermentation, okay? And uh, in another part of my life, I, I actually you know, made beer, and you do the natural fermentation, it's very low alcohol, okay? You have to add yeast to it, and they didn't know about that yet, okay? But here was the big one, was rum. Two and a half million people we think by about 1750. They were consuming four million gallons of rum a year. One of the writers said it's, uh, with, with this level of intake, it's amazing that the, that the folks writing the, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were able to think and write, okay? Now, I'm not the, 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 the beer and the cider, yes. They, they didn't understand the microbiology, but they knew that if they put this in the water, okay, people didn't get sick. The kitchen, I mean, th this would have been, uh, been tough. To, I mean, I, I like cooking, but trying to cook with an open fire in a fireplace as your primary means for cooking uh, that takes a lot, a lot of, a lot of work. I mean, you got to keep moving stuff around to keep it from burning or get it warm enough, and you know, so lots of hassle. Laundry was also not easy, so we're looking at, at scrub boards and buckets of, of warm water. Probably, I mean, you pour some cold, hot water in there, but it's going to get cold fairly soon, and so everything was done by hand. And almost all homes had a kitchen garden. So the, 
throughout a big part of the year, they were able to, to raise an, a lot of their vegetables. Transportation, horseback. We talk about roads, and, and earlier we talked about using public money to do roads, but they, they were just really trails, okay? Not roads that we see today. So buggies, wagons, horseback, common means of transportation. So when they talk about these guys getting together in, in Philadelphia, sending out word to come here for a meeting, you gotta send somebody on horseback to travel to those areas, then they gotta figure out some way to, get, to shut down whatever they're doing on the farm, get on a horse and go back, okay? And figure out how, you know, who's gonna maintain the farm while we're gone. The places that had adequate waterways, vessels became the primary means to get around. I mean, that makes good sense. So what kind of work did people do? I mean, besides being agrarian and have to have a farm of just, you know, in a subsistence, what did they do to get some cash? Well, in the urban areas, lawyers, accountants, and you read in the literature that's called counting rooms, doctors and ministers were, the, were common jobs in, in the communities. You could also be a printer. Silversmiths, tailors, wig makers, wheelwrights, gunsmiths were highly prized, shoemakers. I mean, I don't think about having to have somebody make you a pair of shoes, but didn't go to the store and buy shoes, you go into a shoemaker. And the blacksmiths for all of the metal stuff that you might need. By 1750, a little, little bit later, there was at least 200 iron forges in operation throughout the colonies. And the output was a little over 300,000 tons of, of pig iron per year. Okay? And there, there were small furnaces and they were scattered all over the countryside. Okay? They would be where iron ore was available. So rather than hauling it a long ways, you just go build a furnace where the iron ore is at when, that, when it runs out. You take the furnace down, you move it someplace else, okay, build another one. Tanning was, a, a, excuse me, farming was a big deal. Fur trading, major deal, and we'll see that, that you know, that that's gonna be part of the hassle with the Ohio Valley. And shipbuilding primarily in the nor northern colonies, okay. By 1775, Documents show that there were at least 360 whaling vessels and about 5,000 workers. And we only know that number of the 360 because th these were primarily insured vessels, okay? And so it's from the insurance documents that we're able to get information about how many vessels were, were uh, sailing out, out of here, okay? Most of, most of the area, small farmers provided most of the food and materials needed in town. So you get on the, on the edges of town, there'd be small farmers there, and their deal is I'm gonna, I'm gonna grow something that I can go sell in town, okay? And to get cash, then they gotta go find another kind of a job someplace. So the lumber industry was a big deal. We got mills where we have enough water power to operate a mill, cutting lumber, making shingles, okay? It wasn't all cedar shingles. There were lots of, lots of other materials were used to make shingles. Barrel staves, tanning bark. This was a good side business for farmers is to go out and strip off hemlock and oak bark to, to be able to sell for tanning or making charcoal. So this was an interesting function that they did. A lot of the small farmers made charcoal as a, as a side, side job, okay? And wood ash, okay? So lots of trade back and forth between the colonies. Shipping tanning bark to the south for leather making, uh, potash to the seaports where it was used to make soap and glass, okay? The glass was a little wavy, okay? But they made glass. Then there was some extraction trades. Wool, furs, feathers, bee wax, lime, okay, digging out lime, guano, okay, if you've ever, you know, 
Now, now there's a job that I don't want, is guano, okay? Some coal, copper, a little bit of gold, not much gold in, in, in that part of the country, but some, but, but lots of iron ore. Naval stores were a, were a big deal in, in the New England colonies, where they were able to get hemp, cedar, pine, and oak. Make, they made turpentine. They created tar, and they also then harvested pine pitch. Okay? So this was a big industry, naval, naval stores. Remember, we were just looking at the, the uh, whaling vessels. There were 300 and some of those, but there, was a, there were a lot of other vessels in and out here. Agriculture business was highly productive. I mean, that, this was essentially native lands. Okay? I mean, we don't, don't have, we don't have dirt that's been farmed for several hundred years, so we've got pretty good soil, okay? It was a leading export business. 19 of the 20 largest cities were on seaports, which required lots of folks to deal with the docks. Seamen, dock workers, shipwrights, brokers, and insurance underwriters. The positive trade balance for England, which allowed them to demand payment in gold. And the gold had to come primarily up out of the Caribbean. Okay? And, and it's important for us to remember that the American colonies, from, from the English point of view, the American colonies only existed for the sole purpose of supporting England. And had no other reason for, to be there. Income levels. Now, now this is difficult because the, trying to convert pounds it wasn't pounds sterling, but English pounds from that period of time to, to dollars today is, uh, is a guess. So I've got some guesses here that I've, I've made, okay? So unskilled labor, I know from the documents that people were able to earn somewhere between 20 and $40 a year as unskilled labor. I think that that's somewhere around 1700 to $3,400 in, in today's money. Excuse me, if we transferred that to dollars at that period of time, it's 1700 to 3400 If we went to 2022, that's somewhere between about $78,000 okay? and $157,000. Now, those numbers seem high to me, but trying to make that, trying to, once, once you're able to get this number, then it's pretty easy there's, there's lots of tables out there to help you from get from here to here. It's getting from pounds to dollars. That's a guess. Highly skilled was about 100 pounds per year, okay, which is equivalent at the time of about $8,500. In today's money, that's 393000 what, what I am What I am sure of is that the, this relationship, unskilled, 20 to 40 pounds, highly skilled, 100 pounds, that relationship regardless of what that would look like today, that relationship is solid. I mean, there's lots of, of data to support that. Th this was one that I thought was interesting. How much money did a teacher make? Well, the only teacher information I could find was happened to be in Virginia, okay? Somewhere around 60 pounds a year, which was about five grand plus room and board. If I, I'm using the same conversion, that converts to $235,000 a year plus room and board. Now that's way less than we're paying any teachers anywhere today, okay? So if, if the data is correct, if my translation of the data is correct, teachers were highly valued, okay? And I think we can see that here, that highly skilled was 100 pounds a year, teachers making 60, plus room and board, okay? So they're ranking right up there with the, with the highly skilled. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll take a couple of minutes and look at this British pound deal. One of the difficulties with the British pound is it wasn't a decimal system until 1971. So pre-decimal system, here's the deal. That's the symbol for pounds. S is for shillings, and it's 20 shillings to the pound, okay? Then there are 12 pence to the shilling. 
Now you talk about a level of confusion, okay? I, I divide it by 20, now that's, that I can get, but then I'm gonna take each of those and divide them by 12. <clears throat> so 12 times 20 gives you how many pence per pound, okay? So I did that because the data I found on the, the value of some merchandise in that period of time is in this non-decimal equivalency. So our pair of pistols, okay, were three pounds, 15 shillings, and three pence, okay? Why the D for pence that just, but I wasn't there, okay? That's equivalent to $430 in today's money, okay? Saddle about two pounds, 230 bucks. A wig, 184 bucks for a wig. Butter, buck 90 a pound, okay? A yard of flannel cloth, about seven bucks. A grubbing hole is $30, okay? Why do you suppose that's so costly? Because a blacksmith's got to put, make the metal part of that. Somebody's got to carve the handle, okay? Prayer book, $17 for prayer book. And a bushel of salt, 23 bucks. High demand for salt. I mean, that was the primary means of curing things. So what did they do for fun, okay? Well, their day is pretty busy, but they, they, so they figured out ways to incorporate some entertainment into everyday life, primarily around work, okay? So there's lots of parties like a house or barn raising, so you're gonna do that, then we get everybody together and we have a party afterwards, okay? I mean, probably not before it's done, but at various stages. Sheep shearing, you know, it's an annual event. Corn husking, another annual event. Have quilting parties, okay? Things to bring people together, okay? Have a little free time, probably not much. Uh, county fairs were very common. Uh, during most holidays, they would get a militia muster and do some target practicing or some, you know, see who's the best, best at, at the shot, okay? Hunting and fishing, of course, and in lots of, of, especially the Virginia area and a little bit farther north, horse racing was, was a major big deal. So the, the games that they played, I thought it was kind of interesting. I mean, I think we've all seen this kind of a deal where you've got a, got a ball on a string and you try to catch it in a cup. This is a game that uh, when I taught this class a couple of years ago with the high schoolers here, somebody actually owned one of these and brought it and it's called Nine Men's Morris, okay? And I found it to be somewhat of a complicated game. It probably would be good to practice, to, to do this if you wanted to play chess later on, okay? Oh. But it was a popular, popular game. Hopscotch, hoops, trying to keep a hoop going, okay? Riddles was a big deal. We have riddles today that came from this period of time. What flies up but is always down? Goose feathers. What has teeth but cannot eat? A comb. Nursery rhymes from that period of time, Jack be nimble, Jack be quick, okay? Lucy Lockett lost her pocket, okay? Th those are still, still around. This is one of the, some of the songs from that period of time. Over the Hills and Far Away. Uh, Kingston Trio turned that into a, to a hit at one point. Uh, Kathy Curley, The Foggy Foggy Dew. I, I remember hearing that when I, when, you know, in, 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 back in the, in the 60s. Uh, early one morning, I'm 17 come Sunday. Billy Boy, Black is the Color of My True Love's Hair. Speed the Plow, Patty Quack. Okay, hard, hard sometimes for me to grasp that these came from that period of time. Oh, where have you been? 
So the large churches had their own, okay? The New England Psalm Singers had these American hymns that they had put together, okay? They were fairly detailed. Highly trained choirs. Ballroom dancing was a big deal in, in large towns. Light operas. The Beggar's Opera is still a popular opera today. And it was written, I, th I think I, I just read, I think 1740, 1730, somewhere in that neighborhood. Okay? But it's a popular opera today. And this is, the, this is it here. This is the Beggar's Opera. Men played billiards, not pocket billiards, but true billiards. My thumb gets ahead of me here. This is the typical clothing for the rich and elegant. Probably not everyday dress, okay? But this is getting dressed up for a ball or to go to the opera or whatever. Most people wore more practical kinds of clothing like, like we see here. The, the, the hat that they wore always thought it was odd that it's flat in the front and got these channels on the side. I don't know whether that's to keep the water from... It was to show off the lining. Is that what it was? Yeah, the whole idea was uh, to, show, to display the quality of the hat. It started out with one flap, and then in one area it went to two, and eventually got to three. Right. Now, women were, oh, were in a position of being a critical part of what went on, and I don't think they get enough, oh, enough in, the, in the literature, okay? Oh, one of my favorite books is on Adams, if you, and I tell people if you've got daughters, you ought to get the Adams book and have them read that, because Abigail is, is the key character in that, that book. And without her, I don't think Adams would, would have made it, okay? So women were in charge of the home, food preparation, clothing, house cleaning, all the medical, the children, livestock, and the garden, okay? Let's see if this audio will play. The day began with starting the fire, milking the cows, and creating cream and butter. She then spent the bulk of her morning preparing food for the day and bread for the dinner. The afternoons were sometimes taken up by working in the garden, mending, or taking grain to the miller. Her time also was seasonal, as she had to raise the cattle, make sausage, preserve bacon, and complete the sewing of clothes. They also had to take care of their own children. Only if the family was wealthy enough did the wife have a slave that helped around the house. Or a grandchild, right? Now, compare that to their status, okay? That was their day, but here's the status. In, in almost in the majority of cases, women could not vote. Only white male landowners or those with a specified net worth were able to vote. That's because they're the ones that paid taxes. The status of women depended upon the position of the husband. They often became the attorney for the husband, who was often out of town or out working someplace. If a woman owned a business or operated a business, they were often given permission to vote. Okay. So under English law, all property and money is under the control of the husband. Remember, we're dealing with English law here, okay? A widow is allowed one-third of the estate unless otherwise specified in the husband's will. But she lost the third if she remarried, unless the will provided. Under Dutch law, 
women retained legal identity and financial control. They got 100% of the state if the husband passed. Okay. Under Quaker, Quaker rule, this is, this is a unique situation with the Quakers. They were organized into women's groups. They held monthly meetings. They approved applications for marriage. And they rarely handled money. Okay? And if you were a widow, you had less autonomy than the English or the Dutch. And you came under the authority of a male trustee. Okay? So you've got women's status relative to their husband. And then you've got the influence of whatever denomination they happen to, to belong to, how, how that impacted what happened to them. I thought that's as far as I would get, but I'm going to get further. So, so education, promoted by the king and by governors of most of the colonies. Okay? Well, for what purpose? Okay? Well, we'll talk about it in a second here. But Pennsylvania actually stipulated that all children were taught the three R's until age of 12, and then a useful trade or skill. All children, male and female. So this is most of the New England colonies now had this provision. Towns of 50 households or more were required to have a school funded by the town or funded in some way. You could get a church to fund it. You could get a benefactor to fund it. But you were required to have a school. If there had 100 households or more, you had to have a secondary school, which we call high school. Okay? So th this, was, this was law in several New England colonies. Okay? So here was, the, here was the deal about purpose. Why were they so adamant about wanting education? Well, it was two issues. Wanted to be able to read scriptures and local laws. Because okay? they wanted, wanted to prevent them being given false information either from the pulpit or from some politician. Okay? So that makes sense to me. I mean, if, if we were, why would we have schools today? Those still ought to be the two primary purposes, be able to read scripture and be able to read the laws that are passed. Although, uh, trying to read and understand the laws that we pass. Yep. Okay. So here's some common characteristics for primary and secondary education. Okay. Bible was the primary source of instruction. Everyone was taught by law in Pennsylvania and Connecticut, at least, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments. Everyone had to learn reading, writing, sums, arithmetic, and manners. I'd like to run high schoolers back through the manners. Okay. I think. Without instruction and refinement, men are advanced, but little above their fellow creatures, the brutes. They are ignorant of themselves and the wonder works of providence. A comprehensive education might not make people less sinful, but it could help them come to a better understanding of God's works and purpose. As written in Deuteronomy 6-7, ye shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. So that's a, that's a different understanding of the importance of education between then and now. Now, this is, this is Connecticut law, 1690. And of course, I've, I've, I've just taken some pieces out of it. This legislature observing that there are many persons unable to read the English tongue and thereby incapable to read the holy word of God or the good laws of this colony. It is ordered that all parents and masters shall cause their respective children and servants as they are capable to be able to, to be taught to read distinctly the English tongue. Okay? Not French, not German, okay? but English. And it wasn't an option. I mean, this was the law in Connecticut. 
So, remember we have these three different geographic areas, north, middle, and south. And so things are different in those different areas. Okay? Education, the primary responsibility in most areas was family and church. Okay? Those that could afford to do so, when children got to be about 14, they would send them to England to get advanced education. Okay? Most of the time, the clergy were the, were the teachers in the small communities. Why, why would that be? Why, why the clergy? They typically were the most educated person in town. Okay? Remember, to go to college, you had to be able to deal with Greek and Latin. And most of the time, the pastors were the only ones who, who could handle that. By the time of the revolution, education was more accessible in the colonies than any nation in Western Europe. Very simple equipment. Paper was expensive, so quill and ink were used. No lead pencils, of course. The horn book was, was the common tool that was around that would have things that we needed to, to, to be able to memorize. <coughs> because we could leave them at school and you could pass them on from grade to grade. So this is one of my favorite textbooks, is this guy here, okay? This was the best-selling book in the American colonies. It was the New England Primer, okay? The Bible was number one. And, and some estimates are by 1776, there were five million copies of this thing. There were only two and a half million people, okay? And this little book is only about, I don't know, five inches tall. So, let's get in, inside of it here, okay? So I, I like this stuff down here. This is a, a lesson. I know it looks like F, Fs, but that's the S in that period of time, okay? A lesson for children. Pray to God, love God, fear God, serve God, take not God's name in vain, do not swear, do not steal, cheat not in your play, Play not with bad boys, call no ill names, use no ill words, tell no lies, hate lies, speak the truth, spend your time well, love your school, mind your book, strive to learn, do not be a dunce. And they were required to memorize those. And the alphabet was you know, related to Bible characters or Bible words, okay? A is for Adam, okay, for instance. So this is, the kind of, this is the kind of stuff they had to memorize, okay? Who built the ark? Noah, okay? Who was the first martyr? Abel, okay? Who betrayed his master? Judas, okay? So th these, these are questions that a teacher could ask someone at any point in time, okay? And they were supposed to be able to give you the answer. Then they also had a number of questions that they could call on, say, Mary, would you stand up and tell us which is the fifth commandment? Okay? And Mary would, would then say, the fifth commandment is, honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. And they say, thank you, Mary, and sit down. Okay? Right? So the schools were primarily small. Now, we get to, get to Boston, of course, they're bigger. In Philadelphia, they'd be bigger. But we talk about the majority of towns, they were relatively small because the population was scattered. Uh, basics were provided by apprentice masters. In other words, somebody who had some education but wasn't ne didn't necessarily have any kind of a degree. Okay? Many times, they were not supported by public funds. Uh, some places you got charity schools, as I mentioned earlier, or a benefactor of some sort would, would take care of it. In some cases, a farm was large enough that th they would put together what they called old field schools, which was usually a, a log building or a small building that the farmer would put together or quit using and said, you can use that for the school. Okay? Most of them were one, one room, but they were under the supervision of local clergy. There were tutors available, primarily in endowed schools. So these are schools where somebody said, I'll pay for the, for the tutor, I'll pay for the, the master. So you've got a benefactor of some sort, or a church would do that. Sometimes people in town would come together, 
do that. Most of these were at the elementary level, and they were lower tuition than any than private schools. Okay. There were elementary and secondary private schools. So here's here's the studies for these schools. The males will be learning mathematics, navigation, geography, bookkeeping, surveying, Latin, and Greek. Okay. Now I would love to see that in today's high school. Okay. The girls, basic subjects, uh, the reading, writing, and arithmetic are basic subjects, drawing, music, needlework, dancing, and French. Why French? Even today, it's the second largest language group in the world, not including the Chinese, of course. Okay? All right, in the middle colonies, wide variety of schools. Most of them were charity or private schools. All of the various religious groups maintain quality schools supported by tuition and contributions. Okay? Here's a prospectus from the Philadelphia Academy. Okay? This is what is to be taught. Latin, Greek, English, French, and German languages, together with history, geography, chronology, logic, rhetoric, also writing, arithmetic, and merchant accounts. Now that's a pretty heavy, pretty heavy bundle. Okay, two precedents dealing with the New England colonies. Public education should be compulsory, was their, their view. Well, and public funds should be used to do this with. However, even though they required it, of most of the colonies in New England, it just it just it wasn't in, wasn't enforced very well. Okay, you've got all these small scattered schools. It's really hard to to enforce. But but this you know this was the foundation. I ran across a number of places where families were fined because someone dealing with the government would show up and test the kids and they couldn't read or write, and so the family got fined that because it was their responsibility to make sure that they could read. The class content in New England schools are very similar to, to, the, to the middle colonies, okay? Uh, and of course a different focus between boys and girls, okay? By 1750 there were six colleges, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, University of Pennsylvania, Columbia, and William & Mary. They were all started for the same purpose, train ministers. That was their primary function. And this is somebody's drawing of Yale in 1752. They all allowed others to, ad to attend, even if they weren't of their faith. Okay. So here's kind of the inside of the cover of the, of the you're going to go to Harvard, here's, here's the Here's the issue. After God had carried us safe to New England, one of the next things we longed for and looked after was to advance learning and perpetuate it to prosperity. Okay? So this, if you had a booklet, I mean, I, I ran across this in several documents, but you had a booklet that says, here's the college, you open it up, and that's on the inside cover. This is why we exist. So I found this on a document from 1720, note to all students. Seeing God is the gift of all wisdom, every scholar besides private and secret prayer, wherein we are all bound to ask wisdom, shall be present morning and evening at public prayer in the hall at the accustomed hour. So all students were required to show up twice a day for public prayer if you're going to that school. Now, if you didn't want to do that, then you couldn't enroll there. So this was Harvard's original motto, okay? Truth for Christ and the church. Well, today it's just truth, okay? And it's probably not sure that the folks at Harvard
So this is the University of Columbia University seal. Take a look at, at the detail here. Okay, up here at the top, we've got Yahweh in Hebrew. Okay, in in this thing that she's holding, we have from Psalms 36:10 in Latin, "In Thy light we see light." Okay. Oh, excuse me. That that's that's around here. In in here is living words. Okay. Then in the banner over here, we've got God is, is my light in Hebrew. Then down below here, we've got 1 Peter 2, 1 through 2, admonishment to desire the pure milk of God's word. Now, this was the seal for Columbia University. Okay? So to give you some idea of the impact of this, literacy level in 1750, just for fun. New England, 85% of the men and 50% of the women. Middle colonies, 63 and 53, and of course in the southern colonies, it's lower, 55 and, and 25. Now that's better than anywhere in Europe. You know, there were six colleges, but they were all small, okay? Come on back here. Okay. In 1776, there were only 180 students in Harvard. Breakfast was bread and beer. Okay. Now it was hearty bread, okay. Probably low alcohol beer, but that's breakfast. Okay. There are only about 750 total in all of the colleges. By 1776. Documented 3,000 graduates, an estimate of 2,500 of them supported the revolution. 22 of the 56 signers were graduates of one of these six colleges. And that's where we're going to quit for today. Okay. <laughs>